Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Sorry we're starting a few minutes late, but it will be worth it because we've got a wonderful speaker with us today. Denise Ho um, is someone I've known of for a long time because I've per- she first came to my attention when she was living in Hong Kong. It was during the Occupy movement, and Occupy Central movement. And Denise was teaching there and uh, very involved with a lot of the students. And she wrote a really very moving and very thoughtful article that appeared on the op-ed page of the New York Times. Right? It was the Times? South China Morning Post. South China Morning Post. Not, not above my pay grade for the moment, I think. <laughs> um, but it was really, um, I, I was very impressed by it. So I was then quite delighted to find that she was close friends of someone who used to work here and that she was thinking of applying for a program that we run at the National Committee called our Public Intellectuals Program which nurtures the younger generation of China specialists in the United States. And Denise applied, and fortunately, our advisory committee, whose job it is to select only 20 people from 80 wonderful applicants, um, selected Denise to be part of the program, and we're just delighted that she is. So she is a, a member of the fifth cohort of our public intellectuals program. She has, I've heard her give this talk, or, or a version thereof, uh, because she presented it to us at the first meeting of um, when our, the PIP group got together. Not the first meeting, actually. She couldn't attend that for other reasons, but the second meeting when the group got together. So you, those of you who are interested in the Cultural Revolution and in museums in China, uh, you're in for a treat. We are glad that we, this was supposed to have taken place a month or so ago, but Denise came down with a terrible, terrible cold. She could barely talk. She <laughs> wanted to come down for it, but Margo and I said, no, no, don't get on a train. Stay home it's and get better. bronchitis in the end. <laughs> so we're glad she weathered yeah. that, and we're glad that she's here with us today. And with that, I've already spoken too long, so we're going to have Denise talk. We'll then open it up for questions so that all of you can um, have some input and some interaction. So thank you all for coming. And there are seats at the table still if you want to sit up here. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, and I'm going to move to the side because Denise okay. has I may also slides. slightly move to the side. And how much time do I have? Um, about 30 minutes. Okay, 30 minutes. All right. I'll shoot for 30 minutes. 30, and you'll wave at 35, me. 35. I'll okay. wave at you. 20 to 25. Okay. 30. Okay. All right. Um, so thanks so much to the National Committee for having me for this book talk. I'm really excited to be here. It's so nice to be able to step back from the research and see how the book uh, is received in the world. So I'm grateful for this opportunity. Um, I'd like to start by talking about how the book is structured, and then I'm going to zoom in on one case study. So it, uh, the book is called Curating Revolution, Politics on Display in Mao's China. and This book is a history of the politics of culture in the Mao years, from the establishment of the PRC in 49 to Mao's death in 76. 
and uh, it studies the relationship between museums and exhibitions, especially in the context of political campaigns. Some of these museums are well known, um, like the First Party Congress site where the Communist Party was founded, um, and the Shanghai Museum. Um, and uh, you'll see, whoops, see them here. Um, some historic photographs for you of what it looked like um, in the beginning. Um, the former, the First Party Congress site, is probably not on most tourist itineraries, but just so I get a sense of the audience, how many people have been to the Shanghai Museum? A lot of people in this room. All right, so first time visitors in Shanghai may have been to the, uh, to the latter. Um, and I'm gonna talk about the Shanghai Museum today. The remaining case, case studies are probably less familiar because they don't exist, but I wanna tell you about them um, so you know what the book is about. Um, one is the, um, oh, this is the various iterations of the Shanghai Museum. Yeah. I, I think I have less familiarity with this. Um, but one is an exhibit that, of uh, Fangua Lane, this shanty town that was turned into a new workers' village. And this was used to exhibit the modernization of everyday life. And this was used not just for school children in um, Shanghai, but also for dignitaries visiting China and seeing this example of modernization. Um, another case study is. I take a few back so you clarify. So this little shanty is the muse is the yes. museum. So you got to see old society um, with 18 houses that were preserved on site, and then also uh, new society behind them with the uh, workers' um, apartment blocks uh, that were at one time ubiquitous in uh, the Chinese landscape. Um, another example um, is an example of an exhibit for uh, young pioneers on how to love science and eliminate superstition. This is more typical of a grassroots propaganda display. And where is that? Um, this, these were all, all my case studies come from Shanghai. Um, uh, and exhibits about class. So on the eve of the Cultural Revolution, you have a series of exhibits that are called class education uh, exhibitions. And they go along with the socialist education movement. Um, and they show people um, uh, about the evils of the old society and how class enemies still exist. And here you have workers pointing to places where their bodies had been wounded um, in uh, pre-49 China. And on the right, uh, you have a worker in a textile mill, um, actually one of the most famous uh, textile mills in uh, pre-revolutionary China. Another example are exhibits that were put on by Red Guards that sometimes show up in memoirs of the Cultural Revolution. So here, uh, young people, Red Guards, are going in to search people's houses, and then they put the objects that they find on display. So that's another case study. And all of those are ones that are less well known. I, I write about them more in my book, but I won't talk about them um, today. Today, I want to focus on the story of the Shanghai Museum. Here's a uh, propaganda poster of uh, Red Guards attacking the Four Olds. Um, so most people, when they think about the Cultural Revolution, they'll think about this destruction of antiquity. Um, and uh, if you open any lonely planet, they will tell you about uh, places, sites that were destroyed by Red Guards. And I, I want to start with thinking about the archival material that led me to this research. So as a graduate student, I was looking for a research topic, and I uh, was at the Shanghai Municipal Archive. I typed the words for cultural relic, Wu into the database to see what would come out. And what popped up, actually, were documents um, from the Cultural Revolution about how to preserve 
items. Um, and this piqued my interest because when we think about the Cultural Revolution, we usually think about this story of destruction. So the question is, at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution, what's happening in China's cultural bureaucracy? So this story starts, uh, or my story is in Shanghai. This is where my research was. Um, in the southwestern corner of Shanghai, there is the Longhua Pagoda, which is a structure that dates from the Song Dynasty, one of Shanghai's famous, um, famous sites. On August 23rd, 1966, when the Cultural Revolution is breaking out in Shanghai, a group of Red Guards who call themselves the Burn the Pagoda Headquarters, they loop ropes around the pagoda's base and they're planning to pull it down. But as they prepare to pull it down, a group, a second ring forms around the pagoda. It's a ring of people. And it's ordinary Shanghai people standing, holding hands around the pagoda. And at the time, um, Zhong Yinlan, who was a worker in the, a curator in the Shanghai Museum, remembers, quote, we explained to the Red Guards that the pagoda was Wanwu. It was a cultural relic. It was not one of the four olds. And other museum workers, college students, and local residents joined hands, shouting, do not burn, do not burn. Um, and the Longhua Pagoda stood. You've probably heard other stories like this. Again, the Lonely Planet has um, you know, so-and-so to this temple. Um, it was saved because of Zhou Enlai. Zhou Enlai said it should be saved, and therefore it was saved. And you see this trope happening again and again. Um, and so this example of the Shanghai Museum, I think, will show you a little bit more behind that myth, because it can't just all be about Zhou Enlai saying, sending a telegram to save this pagoda. Um, in the case of the Longhua Pagoda, a protective order from Zhou Enlai came down the day of the attack, but he doesn't show up again until December of that year, where he received some of the students involved. Um, so what goes on behind the scenes? Uh, this is the story of this particular chapter. So let's start with a bit of institutional history. Um, the, Shanghai the Shanghai cultural bureaucracy at this moment um, is made up of a Shanghai Cultural Relics Commission and the Shanghai, um, the Shanghai Bureau of Culture. Um, and together, they're both in charge of the city's Wanwu. So any student of China knows that figuring out who's in charge and who's responsible is really important. So you have these two institution, sister institutions. Sometimes the leadership is overlapping. Um, the Shanghai Museum is first established in 1952. It's first housed in the former race course building and then moved to an Art Deco bank building. And these images are from the interior in the 1960s, the second location. This is the bank building? Yes. Um, and I want to highlight two aspects of the Shanghai Museum's work before the Cultural Revolution. When we think about museums as an institution, what do they do? We usually just see the public face. We see the exhibition itself. But what, does, what happens behind the scenes? Um, so we can start with collection. You can't have an exhibition. You can't have a, a museum without a collection. Uh, you don't have anything to curate. In the 1952, when the Shanghai Museum was established, it had about 7,000 objects. And almost 3,000 objects actually came into the city in, in two trucks in May of 1949, carried from the battlefields on behalf of Chen Yi and his armies. And these items, of course, are largely symbolic. Um, the idea is that even during wartime, you're saving um, cultural objects. There are two main ways that the museum acquires pieces during this period. One is purchase, and the other is donation. Um, 
In terms, of, in the case of purchase, in the early 1950s, the Shanghai Museum um, received fully one third of the municipal budget for cultural and education. And Mayor Chen Yi himself intervened to approve purchases of art. Uh, someone called Li, Li Zunjie, who joined the museum in 1952, remembers, and this is from an oral history I did, quote, we'd bring out the good stuff and invite Leader Chen to have a look. And we'd ask, should we buy it? He would respond, yes, let's buy it. And what if we didn't have enough money? He would say, well, hurry up and write a report, and I'll approve it. And so one of the things you have to remember about the context of the 1950s is that one can still buy buy and sell antiquities on the market um, until 1956, when the art market undergoes socialist transformation. Um, same thing for the First Party Congress site museum as well. Like that, that had to be bought. Um, well, first it was rented and then it was purchased. So you have purchase. Um, the second way to acquire new artwork is through donation. Um, by 1959, an estimated over 1,000 people and 198 organizations had donated a total of over 7,000 wonwu to the museum. Another thing to remember about why Shanghai is important in this story is that this is historically a wealthy place. Um, in order to have collection, you have to have wealthy people. The other thing about this to know is that wartime China, Shanghai, at least up until a certain point, was a safe haven. So wealthy collectors were coming from outside of the city, bringing their collections, their most treasured possessions, with them. Um, so. In this moment, in the 50s, the collectors could sell to the museum, and they could also donate, receiving in exchange not just money, because most of the time the amounts were minimal, but political recognition and even benefits like university places, jobs, and housing. So you really have a case of people tr um, turning their cultural capital into political capital or even economic capital or economic resources. Um, in turn, museum officials knew the collectors and their collections, cultivating relationships with these collectors and perhaps knowing enough about their personal situations that they could go and talk to them um, about their collections and about donation. Um, so there's the collection piece. Another piece to understand about the Shanghai Museum's work is to think about the training of their staff. So the young woman that I quoted on the Longhua Pagoda, Zhong Yinlan, joined the museum in 1952, having not finished middle school. So we can think about Shanghai Museum staff as having three generations. The first generation is artists, collectors, and museum staff who worked in Shanghai in the museum world before 1949. They create the exhibition and catalogs in 1952, um, and they're also the ones who train Zhong Yinlan's preserve, uh, uh, their generation with lessons in art, art history, and appraisal. Um, and as part, of, as part of my work, I collected some of their notes that they took um, when they first came into the museum to have lessons. So you have this first generation. A second generation are people who were part of the um, Communist Party underground as art workers and then they joined as museum leadership. Um, and then the final generation is this um, generation that includes people like Zhong Yinlan, um, others of the 1952 cohort and after. And for her part, she joined, um, she started her training as a docent, but because she had such beautiful handwriting, she was recruited to work on the catalog in 1959, she's selected to study appraisal. And to do this, she actually had to study painting, because how could you understand Chinese painting unless you also uh, could paint yourself? So every Monday morning, she went to the home of a painter and collector, um, just like a student in imperial times, arriving before he had woken up, cleaning the desk, preparing the water, grinding ink from the tablet. 
And for the following seven years, she waited until her brothers were done with their homework. Um, and then she set up on her family's table um, and painted. Um, she was made a full-fledged appraiser in 1966, the year the Cultural Revolution began. And by that time, she was in her mid-30s. So when the attack on the Four Olds began, the Shanghai Museum packed up its exhibition and sealed its doors. What As year are we talking about? 66, so the beginning of, of the Cultural Revolution. Museum workers went to the Longhua Pagoda and joined its defense. So one wall, you have um, the, the movable and immovable. So the immovable is the temple. Um, but of course, most of the objects you think about in museums are movable cultural relics. So what about objects in private collections? The Shanghai Museum installed a 24-hour hotline, and young workers of Zhong Yinlan's generation joined a rotation and slept by the phone. As she remembers, quote, if we had heard that a certain household was going to be searched or that uh, there were red guards who were going to attack the four olds in a house at midnight, then we would send people as quickly as we could. Um, at midnight, at one or two in the morning, no matter what the time, if there was a collection with paintings, I would go there at once. I never got to return home. So she's essentially sleeping on the floor in the museum uh, near the phone. Um, and her account of a story um, of someone called Liu Jingji, who was a textile manufacturer and a collector of paintings, um, is worth recounting at length. So here's, here she is describing her memory of that moment. Quote, I arrived at Liu Jingji's house and spent the entire night there from 6 p.m. to 11 the next morning. He had many paintings, about 2,000 or more. First he was struggled by the rebels, and then he was made to stand in his garden. He stood until the rebels left, and then he snuck back inside. He, Leo saw me writing the inventory, and he came to stand next to me while I wrote out the numbers, one by one, identifying the paintings and the scrolls by name. He stood for a long time, and finally he asked, Miss, you seem to be a Wu expert. You look at the painting, and you immediately know its name. What work unit are you from? I responded, the Shanghai Museum. Our museum will protect them. And immediately his spirits lifted, and he showed me other things. Take them away. Take them all away. Don't leave a single thing behind. In the post-Mao years, this story has been told and retold, becoming part of Shanghai Museum lore. Um, yet we may think of this as an exception. Zhong Yinlan arrived in time. Liu Jingji's collection was known. She knew about this, right? And she knew this was happening. Many did not fare so well. The fate of Wu in Shanghai may be better represented by a report that's, uh, that was issued by the Shanghai Cultural Relics Commission. Remember the two parts of the bu Cultural Bureaucracy, Cultural Relics Commission, Bureau of Culture. This is from October of 1966. This report uh, traced a tale of destruction. Most were not as fortunate as the Longhua Pagoda. Um, all of the images of the gods in the city god temple were smashed. All of the Buddhas at the Chengsheng Pavilion were destroyed. All of the Wangwu at Jing'an Temple were lost. Thousands of volumes of scripture at the Longhua Temple were burned. The cross on the Xijiahui Cathedral was torn down. The interior was torched. Reporting on the destruction, the Shanghai Cultural Relics Commission explained that some sites were so thoroughly destroyed that it removed the Wangwu protection designation um, from the city's historic sites. In other words, these are no longer Wangwu. We're not responsible for them anymore. They've been so destroyed. Um, but in between the lines, if you look 
more closely at this report, the Shanghai Cultural Relics Commission um, was also engaged in a quiet campaign of salvage. Some sites were determined to have historical value. The commission uh, requested that photos be taken, surveys made, surviving artifacts were sent to local museums. Um, and finally, the commission stressed that if there was going to be any construction or archaeological excavation, uh, or sorry, any construction or agricultural development to happen on such sites, it retained the right to coordinate excavation. Um, so both of these examples, the Shanghai Museum and the Cultural Relics Commission, they both suggest that there is a larger and more systematic mechanism to protect antiquity um, at the height of revolution. Again, it's not just all about Zhou Enlai. One uh, question you might have at this point is, so what's, how large and extensive is the system, right? I've told you Shanghai is exceptional. Um, when we think about Chinese history and we think about uh, Chinese politics, we think about the relationship between center and periphery, between center and locality. Um, so let's go to the center and think about what was happening there. In December of 1966, Qi Ban Yu, who is a junior member of the Central Cultural Revolution Group, so this is an extra parapolitical group um, who is making decisions during the Cultural Revolution, he goes to Beijing's Palace Museum to deliver a speech. In it, he made an argument for a quote-unquote revolutionary palace museum in which Wu would be protected um, as the people's property and used to raise their class consciousness. Two months later, at the end of February 1967, Qi Ban Yu has a second meeting with cultural workers from Beijing libraries, bookstores, Wu protection units, uh, museums, and paper mills. Alarmed to learn that Beijing residents were destroying their own collections and that institutions that might previously have purchased rare books were too afraid to buy them, Qi said, you should write a petition. The proletariat needs to carry out struggle with such things, and you need these things as objects of criticism. So at the conclusion of this meeting was that all cultural workers should adhere to the following principles. Separate out books, that is, don't allow them to be turned into pulp paper. Um, protect and manage Wang Wu and do not destroy. In his 2016 memoir, so I waited a long time to figure out what was going on with Xi Ban Yu. Um, at that time, he was the last surviving member of the Central Cultural Revolution Group. He wrote that he convened the meeting on Mao's orders, that Mao was happy to have read reports about it, and that Mao approved both of his speech and the measures that he recommended. So for a couple of years of talking about this research, people would ask me what was known at the center. And it wasn't until Chi Ban Yu wrote his memoirs in 2016 that I saw um, traces of this activity. Um, Beijing cultural workers did indeed circulate such a petition. So this was a piece of ephemera that shows up in Shanghai. Um, so Beijing cultural workers, you have this meeting, Qi meets with them. Uh, Beijing cultural workers circulate a petition. And so this is an interesting thing. When we think about things like um, petitions, when we think about Dadzaba, we always think of them as, or they, they look from the outside as something that's coming from the bottom up, right? This is a grassroots, this is coming from the masses. Um, but you see from this that uh, this was signaled by Qi. It was signaled by the center that it's okay to write this kind of petition. Um, so you see a petition asking for these things, but it's backed by a central bureaucracy. On the same day in mid-February, and these are things that show up in the archives, the Ch Chinese Academy of uh, Science ordered the Shanghai Bureau of Culture to take stock of Wang Wu. 
Um, at the same time, or a few days later, the Central Cultural Revolution Group is directing the Ministry of Culture, right, which is then in charge of um, Ministry of Culture, State Bureau of Cultural Relics, uh, to protect objects from being scrapped, uh, turned into scrap metal. Um, the following month, uh, the, state uh, the Central Committee, the State Council, the Shanghai Revolutionary Committee, they all issue orders along the same lines to preserve the old in order to build the new. In February, Zhong Yinlan went to work in the shell of Shanghai's Xuzhaohui Cathedral, uh, a new institution called the uh, Shanghai Municipal Small Group for Sorting Confiscated Cultural Relics and Books, um, which we'll call the Wangwu Small Group. Uh, is established in April. It eventually consisted of over 100 workers from 12 different work units. By September, the Wangwu small group reported that he had received 280,000 Wangwu and 360,000 volumes of books, not including items salvaged from scrap metal plants or paper pulping mills. It compiled an index with photographs of the most valuable treasures, Shang and Zhou bronzes, ceramics from Song Ching, books, seals, currency, and handicraft. In a report from October, the Wangwu small group justified its work in two ways. It used Mao's writings, citing remarks from 1938, quote, today's China is an outgrowth of historic China. We are Marxist historicists. We must not mutilate history. From Confucius to Sun Yat-sen, we must sum it up critically. We must constitute ourselves as the heirs to this precious legacy. It also glorified Red Guard house searches as cultural preservation for the masses. Quote, in the course of the historically unprecedented great proletarian cultural revolution, the little, red, the little generals of the Red Guards and revolutionary masses have confiscated numerous precious Wanwuan books, which are the creation of the motherland's historical laboring masses. This is an immortal contribution established by the Red Guards. This is a great victory for Mao Zedong thought. The Wangwu small group continued to work throughout the Cultural Revolution. Between 19, June of 1967 to um, December of 1968, usually what we think of the, as the high point of the Cultural Revolution, it received over 3 million Wangwu and handicrafts and off, over 6 million volumes of books. Um, we also have an idea of why the Shanghai Library has such a fantastic collection. Um, here's a photo of the staff of the Shanghai Museum uh, in the fall of 1967, and Zhong Lan, the person that I have been quoting, um, is the woman right below uh, the sign. Let me end with uh, two ideas, one about how to interpret the actions of the Shanghai Museum and the Wangwu small group, and then finally ex um, implications for the present day, if we have time. Um, so how to interpret the actions of the Shanghai uh, Museum and the Wangwu small group? I think there are two arguments to be made. And I don't think they're necessarily in, in, um, in contradiction. The first argument is exactly as the Red Guards claimed, confiscation of Wan Wu and books uh, to be returned to the working masses. Uh, Dee and Lu's study of the Shanghai Museum demonstrates that within the 15 days of the attack on the Four Olds, the Shanghai Museum inventoried over 6,000 objects, of which 38 were top tier Wan Wu. Um, between 1966 and 1969, according to her data, the Shanghai Museum acquired over 100,000 objects, increasing its collection by 70%. Uh, in this interpretation, the Shanghai Museum is not unlike the Louvre in the Revolution, in which works of arts were returned to their rightful owners, the people. Um, the sale of handicrafts overseas, which is another part of the story, um, is not unlike the sale of artwork by the Soviet Union, who had a people's commission commissariat of the Enlightenment 
with a museum department that sold artwork to provide gold for industrialization. And I think it's also important to remember that this kind of um, activity is not uh, just for a revolutionary context. The argument is also made that in Vichy France, um, collaborators argued for pa French patrimony in order to retain artwork confiscated from Jewish collectors. So this is one argument, that this is confiscation for the masses. There's a second, I think, more nuanced argument to be made, um, which is that the Shanghai Museum and the Wu Small Group issued receipts when staff were on hand at the moment of confiscation. In 1984, Shanghai local officials were charged with returning Wu to their original owners, and the Wu Small Group estimated um, that of the items accounted for in 86, 76% of Wu found their way back to the former owners. Um, so, but this doesn't account for things that were lost, things that were destroyed, and things that were sold. Um, we might also, to try to reconcile these two views, we might ask what historical actors thought they were doing. Uh, in oral histories, Zhong Yinlan is, is adamant that objects were being taken care of on behalf of their collectors. She describes with pride her years in the countryside sorting Wan Wu. Quote, we had a very high consciousness. We didn't pay any mind to our living conditions. If one day a painting from the Qianlong period would suddenly leap out at us, or a painting from the Ming Dynasty, we were overjoyed. What a wonderful thing. For Wan Wu to be protected by our own hands, this was a thing with great meaning, which made us very happy. Um, one of her contemporaries who uh, also worked for this group said, other people could go out and rebel or write big character posters. I would go and study, study our ancient culture and art. There were so many things that one had never seen before and now one could see them, so it made one rejoice. Perhaps the irony is that uh, though cultural revolution rhetoric is eventually repudiated, collecting antiquity was for the masses after all, first to cultivate this generation that came of age in New China, and then curated for the public in the post-Mao era of reform. Um, I just want to end on the thought that, um, that uh, I think this example shows that we often think of revolution as something that is a complete uh, rejection of antiquity. Um, in her recent book on Anyuan, Elizabeth Perry argued that cultural nationalism has always been part of the Chinese Communist Revolution. And I think that in our own times, um, with Xi Jinping's use of both historical narratives um, and revolutionary narratives, that the story of antiquity and revolution are intertwined. So, thank, you. thank you so much, and I look great. forward to your questions. So I'm sure if, if you have, since we have place cards for all of you, if you have questions, why don't you put your place, stand them up on end. And Marty, I will take you first, but others who have questions, stand them up. And when you ask a question, please tell us who you are. Oh, okay. Um, Martin Goodwin, um, doing a dissertation for a long, long time on Joe and Lai and Post-Revolution, as a matter of fact. Let me try and be quick. Several things I wanted to mention. You mentioned Chi Pen Yu. And it's interesting that he was purged that yes. year and a half later. Yes. Oh, and sacrificed by the left as a sacrifice to the left. The, another point I wanted to mention about your particular poem is did you do anything on this reputation that Gang Sheng had of, of hoarding all kinds of things and making an excuse for it? You know, and then it became a scandal later on, even before the Cultural Revolution was ended. Okay, I want to go to something else. Wait, 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 Martin. Let her, let's, let's start with those two, and then we'll yeah. give you another chance after other people. But when you're answering, for those who aren't familiar with Gang Sheng or Chi Ban Yu, you might explain who they are as well. 
Um, so the, the question is, did I work on uh, Kangsheng? No, I didn't. I didn't extend this story to Beijing. But yes, there is the story that this is a, a, a central leader at this time as well. Um, he took advantage of these warehouses of confiscated things to um, admire um, art as a connoisseur <laughs> himself. Um, <laughs> elsewhere, I have uh, I have an article about um, campaigns against collectors um, in the. Uh, second Five Antis campaign in 64. Um, and so one of the things that collectors are charged with is corrupting the cadres, because who are buying or enjoying these art? Um, some of them are officials. And I, I think it also says something about the way in which um, the intellectual world and the official world overlapped, and that this is part of being a literati, um, even in revolution. Thank you for the question. Is that Fallon with your? Fallon. Okay. Fallon, sorry. Yes. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. It was a really interesting presentation. Uh, my question was the original stories that were told about the antiquities that were either sold or donated, did those stories differ from when those items were then confiscated and people had to maybe claim or like? Um, retell those stories. Do you think those stories deferred, or were people quite honest about re retelling the stories? Um, I'm trying to to locate the the two. Sure. So before and after the Cultural Revolution. So um, I think you mentioned um, when antiquities were first donated uh, to mm -hmm. the Shanghai Museum um, in like the early 50s. Uh, you mentioned that people who were either selling or donating their like families historical mm -hmm. antiquities. Um, you mentioned that like um, they might tell the story about where it came from. Um, I think in those cases, and we do have um, things like as. Uh, speeches on on the moment when they were making the donation. Um, usually these are um, the narratives that are told in that context are, um, this has been in my family, but I realize it belongs to the masses. And, um, uh, and inspired by um, the achievements of New China, I'm donating these items to the museum. Usually that's the kind of narrative that's, that's told. Um, and your question was then after the Cultural Revolution? If the pieces were returned um, to the families after the Cultural Revolution? I hope this is, <laughs> um, so I think it dep it's a sort of a case. To tell the story maybe differently. There, there is, um, uh, I, I think it's, there's a case-by-case -case basis. I think in the, in the story of uh, Mr. Liu, the textile manufacturer, um, the, the story about him is that he was so overjoyed to see his pieces again that he then made another donation. Um, but then if you look, read the oral histories of some of the um, people, uh, staff of the Shanghai Museum, there were also people who, whose things were lost and they never saw them again. And they may have thought that they would be in the museum and they showed up at the museum and they weren't there, um, that they, uh, and then uh, were, uh, were very, you know, kind of uh, understandably extremely upset about them being lost. Um, you also have things um, in memoirs where um, there's pressure on people who want to leave China after the Cultural Revolution to leave that behind when they when they leave. Um, and of course, there 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 are laws about taking antiquities outside of China. Can we stay on that subject a little bit? So, you studied Shanghai. Yes. Um, these laws about returning people's property mm -hmm. after the Cultural Revolution. 
Was it a law at the national level, yes. at the central level? Yes. So everyone was supposed to adhere to it? Yes. And were there places that perhaps didn't adhere to it more than others? Or did you get the same? Would Beijing and Shanghai sort of return things because there were rich people there and then maybe out in, well, not Xi'an, because that would also have a lot of, but someplace else in the provinces, maybe they wouldn't be so faithful about returning things. Is there any record of that? Um, this is a project, um, my colleague Daniel Leza is doing a project on the post-cultural uh, revolution, um, everything from properties to uh, restoring people's names. And so there's a, a big group working on this in Germany. So I don't think I can speak to the national context. Um, I think in the case of, uh, uh, in, the, in the Shanghai case, in the case for antiquities, I think that you have a, the, the, the positive story um, of the person whose um, objects are preserved and who gets them back and then makes the donation. I think that's the exceptional case. Um, I think for many people, the, the people that the museum staff knew about were the big collectors, right? Other people would not necessarily have been, had the same treatment. Um, a lot of things were lost, um, are lost in the chaos, or even things that, that people had receipts for, um, some of them did not show up in the 1980s. Um, and so the state made a, a monetary restor uh, restitution for these. Um, but in that case, I think they're, they're, they're not, they are at the price that the state decides, uh, which was always, um, in the absence of the market during the Mao period, um, the price that the, the state said um, your, your item was worth was, um, was what you received. And are there cases like there have been post-Nazi Germany and confiscation of Jewish goods, are there cases now of people ever suing the government to get back the either their property or the values of it? Um, that you know about? Twitter. Not that I know about. I, I think that this would probably be easier to, to, um, to trace in the context of real estate, but I, I haven't done that study. Um, Professor Shaw, would you know more about the, the case of real estate? Um, if I could speak indeed. Please. And could um, you tell us who you are? And this is Ching Shaw. Mm -hmm. I teach history at the College of New Jersey. Okay. Uh, my recent work is on the urban transformation post Mao. Um, first about your talk, you mentioned that 65% of the, uh, the things uh, the Shanghai Museum took from the collectors were returned. And uh, then uh, what about the rest? What happened to the rest, 35%? Uh, that's one of the questions. Um, how did they, did they keep an inventory, everything, you know, for, so they know who's belong to, you know, what belong to whom? But to speak to your question, uh, I started a family in Shanghai um, the Red God came to search the family, then give them 60 pages of inventory, yeah. list. Hmm. Some pages with two columns. Hmm. Um, they searched them for nine times. Hmm. Among the 66, 60 pages of the confiscated you know, inventory, pages, pages are about Asian stuff because the family's grandpa was a big landlord in one of the Jiangsu the small town. And his only habit was collecting 
um, paintings, artwork, and the calligraphy. And so after the Cultural Revolution, the family was called to go to a warehouse. And on, in the warehouse, there were shops <coughs> with stuff. And uh, so the family went, and uh, the, the staff there told them, this shop, these five or six pieces are yours. The family had hundreds, hundreds of pieces. And so they got back one main vase, one chin vase, a uh, couple of calligraphies and paintings. One is Dong Qi Chang's calligraphy, still hanging in the family. So the family, um, most of that is lost. There's no way to trace it. And the family is still petitions, but not for the paintings because they have bigger issue to petition. They lost the five properties mm -hmm. for the Communist Party. And one uh, they lost most recently, that's their petition. Mm -hmm. um, so. Okay, yeah, just going around. Yes, you're oh, next. I didn't, I didn't yeah. get to ask, answer yeah, your sorry. question. Oh, I'm sorry. I so the yes. question is answer what happened question. to, yeah, to, to the, so again, again the, that, um, that, that estimate comes from the Wangwu small group, right? So this is the state's estimate of how much stuff gets returned. Um, and so as, in terms of how things were calculated, I never saw, I was never allowed into the Shanghai Museum's um, own repository. So uh, I was looking at things that would hap happen to be copied to um, things that would end up in the, cult in the municipal archive. So um, I think there are records, um, but they're, for the reasons that you mentioned, uh, going to be uh, politically sensitive. Um, so uh, an outsider would not be allowed to look at those kinds of records. What happens to the rest? I think some may be destroyed, and then some are going to be sorted out and sold overseas for export. Um, and that was the, so, so I think some things, are, some things that are accounted for, um, so I think things could be accounted for and saved. Things could be accounted for and disappeared. Things could, um, be confiscated and not have any record, um, and some subcategory of those could be sold overseas. Um, and I think when you interview museum workers or people in the art market, they say this is kind of a fact of um, of of life um, or a, a, a fact of China's condition in that time that you needed to have foreign currency. So these things are being exchanged for foreign currency. Um, and uh, there is a designation between um, uh, things that are wangwu um, and things that are handicrafts. Um, so from Qianlong period and after, so from the 18th period and after, those things are handicraft and they're allowed to be exported. So what's happening, so what happens is, um, and so those things can be sold. Um, and so Zhong Yinlan, um, she actually, she and her colleagues wrote a petition saying that this is not scientific. You know, how can you just say that this last piece is Gong Yiping, this last piece is handicraft and just cut off Chinese history that way. And actually their petition is, is approved and then after, I, this is the part that I cut out of my talk, um, after those years of 66 to 68, she's actually in the countryside sorting um, through um, 
through items and uh, deciding which is Wanwu and which is Gong Yiping, which is cultural relics, which is handicraft, um, and then going back through warehouses after her petition is approved and um, trying to save things to bring back that have his artistic or historical value and not have them um, ha have them uh, be sent away. So in some ways, like this is also a incredible art history education um, because she says, she says she wakes up every day and she has half an hour break for lunch and um, somebody is standing on either side of her, unroll, and then she uh, appraises, rolls back up, unroll, roll back up, and she spends years doing this. Um, so I wanted to end with the voices of some of the people I um, interviewed because I think it's more, it's more, it's more complicated than just a tale of confiscation or preservation, um, that you really have to understand the context of the people who are involved. It's not, it's not black and white. Eileen. Oh, thank you. Yeah, my name is Eileen, so I'm an economist. So I think uh, uh, my first question is uh, more like a, a clarification. You mentioned that some of the relics were destroyed so badly they no longer regarded as relics, like there's no effort in preserving them anymore. Is that mm. I think to clarify that it was because before then they have a placard or des designation that this is Wang Wu Bahu Danwei. And so the work unit, the Danwei, who it maybe it's a school that's in an old temple. Um, if you have the designation Wang Wu Bahu Danwei, then that unit is in charge of preserving the, the structure that it's in. And so I think in the case of removing Wang Wu Bahu Danwei, that designation is, is a way of saying that there's, it's no longer. It's no longer What's the. To, to um, it's no longer the responsibility. Okay. Like the responsibility is taken away. But anyone's making effort to still preserve them, like a, even they would destroy the relics. Like a, I'm thinking about Roman remains. Mm -hmm. you know, they still remains. You know they carry history. So are you saying no effort at all try to preserve them, even they would destroy partially or fully? Um, do you mean then or no? No. Oh, no, no. no. Uh, of course now. Um, in the, I mean, in, in, in the reform period in the 80s, there is um, an effort to restore some of these places that had been turned into, into factories. Um, the Wanmiao in, in, um, in Shanghai, the, I, f I forget, there's a temple in the, in the place where the, there's a, still a tiny piece of city wall. Um, so yes. When when I say the Wangwu Bahu Dangwei designation was taken away, this is the night August August or September nineteen sixty six when Red Guards are attacking uh, the four olds. So that, you had a second question, and then there's actually two fingers. Was that a follow up? No, go ahead, Eileen. Your oh, next question. Um, actually, I have uh, two more, but I try to make it into one. Um, so, <laughs> sorry. Um, so let me just jump to quickly. Actually, combining these two into one, I'm thinking about the title of your book, Curating Revolution. Right? I'm, I'm trying to figure out listen to what does that mean. So it seems like you're saying there are two forces at the play during the Cultural Revolution. One is obviously was very destructive. The other one was like a small effort trying to preserve, as you're talking about those case studies. Uh, and the way they preserve, are you saying they still kind of curating revolution in the sense like they, they, they preserve them and returning them to the mass, that's the, that's the, the slogan. And uh, um, 
also, uh, also talking about how the museum displayed the history part mm -hmm. of uh, mixed politics with the art facts art fact and so on. And you're talking about the last part. Currently, there's a cultural uh, nationalism. And, and it reminds me always of the selectiveness of it based on the politics. Mm -hmm. um, so that jumped to the other question is, is that uh, you talk of 76% that uh, preserved that returned to the original owners. But these are the ones, as you said, based on the account, the, the one that accountable. Mm -hmm. But what is the percentage of the relics that be destroyed? Have you, do you know that? That, so t to answer that immediately, I, I don't know how to yeah. how to start counting that. Yeah, because 76 sounds huge, but if we look at the, the, the ones that preserved is relatively small compared to the ones Right, so the 76% so the is the ones that were accounted for in the 1980s. Exactly. 1980s. Yeah. I see. So I guess perhaps if we could have that percentage, that gives the change, the picture, you know, really what is the... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how th that would be done. I mean, I think it would be more of like a citizen accounting or some something sure. like that, um, or some, some sort of more grassroots um, yeah. Uh, yeah, accounting. Um, but y your your question in the middle was uh, about um, yeah, what do um, I mean by curating? Right. Yeah, and I'm thinking whether you emphasize um, on that on your uh, in your book. I haven't had a chance to read, but I'm thinking about just we we shouldn't forget that selectiveness. Of mm -hmm. That whenever they're talking about cultural na nationalism, you know, whenever there's a political need, they will bash it. When there's another political need, they will wave the flag. That's always the case. That's, that's just my Sure. I, I think um, so. In my my book, and this is um, this is one of six case studies. I talk about curating as a, a, a longer process of collecting of. Uh, creating an exhibit and narrating the exhibit, um, and then uh, the reception and the visiting of the exhibition. And so I think this chapter is more of an example of the first part, the collecting. Uh, but of course, in order to have the second stages, you need to have the collection to begin with. Um, and in some ways, uh, this this is primarily a story of collecting insofar as um, uh, this is not this is about preserving for the future, right? So if you look at the telegrams from, um, <coughs> let's say, February of 1967, they say things like, you have to collect these things and save them for after the, mom the, after the revolution, after the moment is, after this um, campaign is over. Mm -hmm. So it's after this Yundong is over. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to preserve them now. Mm -hmm. uh, and, the f and of course, that's looking from the outside, it's, uh, it's a little bit incongruous because this is the era of continuous revolution, right? It's supposed to keep going. Um, and uh, so, uh, but, but then in those telegrams, there was this recognition that this mov movement is going to be over and you still want to have these objects. And if you destroy them now, then you, um, you can't uh, use them ever again later. Um, so maybe part of the story is just fundamentally um, you have the art historians and the curators, but you also have bureaucrats, and bureaucrats are conservative, um, and they don't want to get in trouble for something that was destroyed or ruined on their watch. So it's a lot safer to save them and put them in that warehouse and figure out what to do with them later than to let them get destroyed. Um, so it's also a bureaucratic story. Thank you. Alfred? Wait, it, John, was that two-fingered? No, okay, Alfred. Uh, my name's uh, Alfred, and uh, 
I'm with Danfoss uh, uh, Global Leader in Climate and Energy, which has nothing to do with Cultural Revolution. <laughs> but personally, I have gone through Cultural Revolution. So I wonder, of course, I first uh, thank you very much for a very interesting presentation, and uh, which I really enjoyed. But without reading your book, uh, I wonder if I could ask some two general, more sure. general questions. Of course. Number one is uh, in studying uh, cultural revolution and uh, focusing on uh, purity revolution, uh, how do you see uh, currently the rhetoric of cultural revolution now coming back to real life again? Mm -hmm. uh, that's number one. And the number two is uh, specifically on the, on the individual you mentioned, Xi uh, uh, actually, he is a rather minor figure in the Cultural Revolution, but uh, I think he, he uh, tried to play a role. And uh, actually, he just passed away, yes. and uh, he published a book which actually exaggerated, according to some insiders, his own role. Mm. So I wonder if you have read that, and uh, or you can make some comment. Okay, so the second question about Chi Yu, I think you're right, he was a minor figure, and I think that's why um, he came out to meet with the, the people in the Beijing cultural bureaucracy. Um, in terms of, uh, I, I, did, I did look at his memoir, and that's where I was able to confirm that at least Mao knew about these meetings, uh, according to his account. Um, I don't have archival documents to show that. Um, so whether that's exaggerated or whether that's that's made up, I guess um, we, that has to wait for the Central Party archives <laughs> to open up um, to confirm. Because again, um, memoirs are not always uh, memoirs are a kind of historic document like others. So perhaps that's not true either. Um, your first question about uh, the return of cultural revolution re uh, rhetoric is an interesting one, um, and I think what's um, a useful way to think about this is to think about the use of um, the use of the cultural revolution rhetoric in the cultural revolution. So um, the cultural revolution was very long; um, it was ten years, and, but but there are different phases, and it's really only the first two or three years that are this red guard street mobilization phase. You have violence later on, but it's more of institutionalized state violence, cleansing of the class ranks. Um, so one way to think about cultural revolution re rhetoric, and this is an idea borrowed from uh, Daniel Leza, who wrote a book on, on the Mao cult, is to think about um, the cult of Mao as being both about mobilization and about control. So in the beginning, it's about mobilization. Um, and it gets people worked up, but then after I think he dates it to like 67, it's about control, um, that uh, people behave in a certain way or they say certain things or they perform um, loyalty dance as a way of signaling um, that they are conforming. So we can think about mobilization and control as two sides to cultural revolution rhetoric. And I think right now, if there is cultural revolution rhetoric or uh, traces of Maoism, it's the control part, not the rebellion part, or not the mobilization part. John? 
I actually had the Team on You question that Alfred just asked. I was curious about you know, how one, whether there's double verification there, how one assesses his own account. No, yeah, no, that's, that, that is the memoir um, that I have. I mean, the, the um, you have, okay, um, you have the speeches um, that she made during that period, including the one, so we know he was at the Palace Museum at the end of 66, and we know he convened the um, uh, various cultural groups um, in the beginning of 67. So that we have, um, we have documentary evidence for. Um, his communication with Mao is something that comes from the memoir. Something I can't, I have not figured out um, is uh, that uh, in, in some of the archival documents that were in the Shanghai Bureau of Culture from early 67, um, the, if you look at the cover sheet of documents, there are a bunch of signatures on it. Um, and there's a signature of some somebody with surname Chi signed some of those documents, um, and I've showed them to Chinese scholars, and they said, "Oh, it's Chi Bang Yu who approved this." Um, and I can't. I only have the last name and a signature, so I don't know. Um, but those are, I guess, are three different kinds of evidence: the memoir, which I think is probably the most problematic, the speeches, and then a signature. An extension, though, can you talk a little bit about being a Westerner studying the Cultural Revolution and when you're using Chinese ar ar archival materials in China, what the reception was uh, to your work? And can I just add to that? So for a while, it was fairly easy for Westerners to get access to China's archives. It's not as easy these days. Could you do the same kind of work today that you were able to do on your book? And then just one more addition. It sounds like you became a, very close to the woman who you quote extensively. How did you go about cultivating that relationship? Were there others that were as open to you um, or were there some, perhaps, who were ashamed of what they did during the Cultural Revolution? She seems very proud, which is wonderful, because she was preserving things. But did you talk to Red Guards who were involved in the destruction of things? So, um, okay, that's a couple of different questions. Uh, so, I, 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 I interviewed Zhong Yinlan twice um, and was able to get to her um, through friends who are art historians. Um, and she's really seen as uh, a very venerable figure in the Shanghai Museum when, you, when other people see her, they're, you know, Zhang Bei, Zhang Bei, like this elderly generation. Um, and in some ways, she had a training that people nowadays can't have because she was looking at the originals. Um, so it's really a remarkable story. And I think it's an, also an interesting story about gender and class as well, because how could a woman from a working class family have that kind of art history training um, in the quote-unquote old society. Um, so a really fascinating character. I interviewed her twice, um, but I think the story she was telling me was the, the, um, was the good story, as you say, and the story that shows up in newspapers and interviews with her um, in the news. So it, in some ways, it, it was a little bit like official history. Um, in terms of uh, people destroying things, I did... Um, not so much for this piece, but for my chapter on um, the Red Guard exhibitions. I interviewed uh, people who had seen Red Guard exhibitions um, or who um, 
maybe had something, um, some item of theirs put on display. Um, and that was, uh, I don't think I, I've probed that much into how people um, felt about it. It was more, this is what you saw. Sometimes people would say things like, I was really surprised to see Qing Dynasty robes on display. I'd only ever seen those in movies. Um, or um, when I saw some, when I saw gold bars on display or nationalist flags or foreign currency, um, I was frightened and kind of shocked because this is the kind of thing you hear about in propaganda as negative. So of course I saw them as negative. Um, so uh, that that's in response to the, the the interviews question. As far as archival material, um, two or th maybe three years ago now, I, I went to the Shanghai Archive and I just put in archival um, the Dren numbers into the computer to see um, what was still available, and I just picked a sample from each chapter. Um, and the uh, so at least as of three years ago, I had. The, the numbers um, for every chapter, but the Shanghai Museum chapter um, came up. Um, I think uh, things that involve personal names and particularly properties um, have are actually no longer in the system. Um, so, um, so, so it, speaking to Professor Xiao's research, um, the uh, documentary material I used for campaigns against art collectors. Um, that no longer exists in the system, in the computer system. So I think the short answer to your question is that there are parts of the research that I, I wouldn't be able to do um, now. Um, and uh, things that involve personal names, including personal property, um, is something that is sensitive and um, doesn't either was there and um, is no longer. Um, but I. It's only that I knew that it was there that I would be able to to ask about it because if it doesn't appear in the system, it's like it never existed. Um, but do you I, think it's actually been removed, or it's no? Nebu? It's on it's on the Nebu computer. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it could be public again in ten years. Um, it 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 could be. Um, I don't want to. I'm not a political scientist, so I'm not going to make any make any um uh, any uh. Predictions about about the past, um, but I, there's some really interesting things that are happening. And part of it, um, we think about digitization of archives as making things suddenly so open and so accessible. But one thing about digitization is that once when they digitize the file, then they know what's in it, because before it might just have been labeled uh, on top. And the only reason why it's been flagged as anything interesting is because a researcher has looked at it, and then all of a sudden, oh, it's interesting. But once it's digitized, somebody has to, is looking at it while it's being digitized. So that may be the cause of some disappearance. Another thing that's really interesting is that um, when you digitize something, you, um, you cross things out. You, things that are crossed out cannot be read. But before it was digitized, you can hold it up to the paper, like uh -huh. up to the light like this, uh -huh. and read what's behind it. Uh -huh. um, so one example uh, from the chapter um, on anti-superstition campaigns, there is an incident of holy water happening in the suburbs of Shanghai. I think, forget, 50, 56? Don't quote me. Um, but so there is a case where there's water that's said to be um, 
have healing powers, um, and people run to drink the water, and the local cadres are dispatched to have a propaganda exhibition next to the water with microscopes and show people that this water is not clean, this is not scientific, um, so it's an anti-superstition exhibition next to the water. Um, but in the archival documents, it's recorded what people said. Um, when they face the cadres. And they're actually saying things that are extremely critical, like we don't have money to go to the hospital, so the only thing we can do is drink this water, or uh, things, things like this um, that are very critical of the state and critical of local officials. Um, and so interestingly, if you trace those to the archives, um, they get blacked out, and then the next version, they're not copied. And the only way I knew about them is because I could do this. Um, but you can't do that with a digitized copy. You only see the black. Right. Um, so it, it's an interesting comment on, on the ways in which it's not just politics that um, affects our work, but technology as well. But Joan, was your question what her experience was like as a foreigner doing this research? No. So do you think? Whether, whether how open the Chinese were to having an outsider look at this messy part of Chinese history. Um, and I suppose the add-on, the, the fact that you're Chinese-American, how that may have colored their reception of you, positively or negatively. Um, I think there are different responses. So. Um, at least in the past, um, archives that are labeled open, that are kaifang, are supposed to be kaifang. Um, so in theory, this is it's supposed to be open to researchers. Um, and I think in some ways, when I said I was interested in cultural relics, it's not necessarily seen as something politically sensitive um, at first glance. It's not like I'm studying the prison system or something. Preservation uh, when I ask the same question. So I, I think it's not necessarily seen as 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 negative um, in, in or sensitive in the first place. I think I come up with um, come up against other other issues like how how could you understand this if you're not from this context um, um, or that 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 that's one response I've gotten. Um, you know. Chinese people see this, see these kinds of documents, and they have a particular feeling. How how can you understand them? Um, or um, perhaps sometimes um, a, another response I've gotten is that um, that I I seem very um, perhaps I've I'm too gullible, or that I believe the narrative. Um, and one of the ways. Um, I try to structure the chapters is to have the chapter begin with the exhibition so that we are seeing it as um, as a viewer might see it and then over the course of the of the, um, of the chapter I try to show what's behind um, the uh, what's behind the scenes um, so kind of this is the exhibition and, and here is how to think about it or how to frame it or how it's problematized um, but I think it's also easy to just see the the front and think, oh, you're so gullible and you believe all this propaganda and um, uh, this is so left. Um, <laughs> but 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 I think you know, as as a historian, I think my job is to show how something is complicated. 
Okay, well, thank you. We have reached, uh, we have two minutes left. Um, I just might add one tale to um, your narrative of the workers surrounding the Longhua Pagoda so that it wasn't um, destroyed. Uh, and it's, it's not Shanghai, but it's Xi'an. In the, I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Mosque in Xi'an, which is one of the, Xi'an has a very large Muslim Hui population, and they have a beautiful mosque there, but unlike the mosque in Xinjiang, Xinjiang or elsewhere, it is, it is built just like a Chinese temple. It's really a beautiful series of courtyards that you go into until you finally get to the Grand Mosque. And the, it's not the mullah, it's not, what's the name of the, the imam, thank you. The chief imam, um, who's a real character, loves to tell the story of what happened when the Red Guards came to destroy the Grand Mosque. And he took a tale from the Arabian Nights, and he stood out on the platform where they would call people to prayer, and he just told stories all night long and to this group of rabble-rousers, not rabble-rousers, this group of Red Guards who wanted to destroy this mosque. And he enthralled them with his stories <laughs> so that they went away in the morning and the Grand Mosque still stands. Or so he says. Well, that's or so he says. He's quite a character. I wouldn't put it beyond him to, um, you know, elevate himself a little bit, but it's a great story. That's a great story. And I think it reminds, um, uh, reminds us that there is a lot of local creativity yes. um, and individual creativity um, in, in, in this story as well. And a lot of individual creativity, the way people preserve their own things and, and their own personal. We, we had in, in the, there's a poster out there of a woman um, swirling around red uh, ribbons. Uh, it's from our 1978 visit of the Performing Arts Company. And in that company was a woman named Zhou Xiaolan, who was a very famous opera singer in Shanghai prior to the um, Cultural Revolution. And she appeared one day. This was a company that came here to tour for six weeks, <coughs> six very difficult weeks, I must say. Um, and she showed up one night in these beautiful high-heeled shoes, quite high heels, and in wonderful condition and very lovely shoes. And this was after all, 78, the cultural revolution had, was just about, had just about come to an end one or two years before. And we said, oh, those are lovely shoes. Where did you get them? She said, well, I got them when I was a teenager. And she said, during the Cultural Revolution, I went out to my backyard, mm -hmm. and I dug a hole as far down as I could get, and I wrapped the shoes in cloth, and now I'm able to bring them out again and wear them. So people were very creative. <laughs> and speaking of creative, um, Denise has been very creative and written this excellent book, and so we urge you, uh, if you want to step outside and buy a copy, Denise would be happy to um, autograph it for you. So thank you very much for coming down. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.